All right. Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and I got another interview this week. Uh, I have Zach Garris with me, and not Harris, Garris. So <laughs> it's a G, not an H. Uh, but, uh, you know, Zach, you're a brave man because, um, you know, I have a, I guess, a career as a student right now in history, and I've studied a lot of antebellum sources. And of course, because of that, I've had to be a little bit familiar with the works of Robert Louis Dabney. But uh, in today's day and age, he's not a very popular guy. And you just came out with a book called Dabney on Fire, which I think would probably be the situation a lot of people today would love to see Dabney in on fire. But you, of course, <laughs> meant that in a positive way. So why don't you tell me about why you decided to publish this book and what you have gleaned from R.L. Dabney. And just tell me a little about uh, you know, yourself and what you're up to as well. Sure. Well, a little bit about myself. I'm a seminary graduate, went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and I actually just finished law school. So uh, kind of dabbling in two different fields. As far as Dabney, uh, you know, 19th century Presbyterian pastor and theologian, extremely influential, uh, used to be considered a hero of the church, certainly in Presbyterianism. And he's really been dismissed. Uh, you know, today he's essentially ignored by most, even within Presbyterian circles, in my experience. Yet he was, as I said, extremely important. He was a leader in the Southern Presbyterian Church, particularly after the uh, war between the states. And he was the first biographer of Stonewall Jackson. So he's, you know, provided important resources there for later biographers. And yet he's ignored today because of his association with the Confederacy and he owned slaves and defended the practice. As far as the book, why did I publish Dabney on Fire? Well, if you read Dabney's works, he's extremely helpful, very insightful, and a lot of his essays apply to today. You know, when he speaks on some of the things I include in this book on government, feminism, I mean, he's dealing with the early stages of feminism, but his criticisms apply to today. <clears throat> and he was able to foresee a lot of the things that would happen in the future. And I think that's what makes Dabney so fascinating to read is he's, he's dealing with the early stages of progressivism in the United States. And he's predicting exactly where it's going to go. And so he does this with public education, with feminism, and some other government policies. And so that's why I published this book is just to make it more accessible. You know, you can purchase his works on your own. His <clears throat> discussions, his uh, collection of his essays is available, but it'll cost you, you know, over $100 for the five-volume set. A lot of his works are available online, but they're usually scanned PDFs, and most people don't like to read those on your computer if you're like me. So what I did is I took four of his essays, I put an introductory essay at the beginning, and then I added footnotes, an introductory section to each essay of Dabney's, and then I uh, also added some more subheadings and uh, just made it easier to read. So really, the, the goal of this book is just making Dabney more accessible to 
uh, readers today. Yeah, it was accessible. I really appreciated your uh, <clears throat> headlines there. So when I was reading through it, I could figure out, okay, this is what he's talking about if I kind of lost track. And, you know, you have four essays here. One is on parental responsibilities. One is on secularized education. Uh, the third one's on women's rights. And then the fourth and last one is on civic ethics. And, you know, you could tell Dabney has a wide breadth of knowledge. And he's, yeah. he's a deep thinker. Uh, and that probably is what inspired folks like Warfield and other Southern Presbyterians, especially to look to him as this kind of monumental uh, figure. Uh, and I know he, he's written, I believe, a systematic theology and other things as well. You're just kind of compiling more his social um, commentary, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And if people want more of his theology, I would encourage them to just go purchase his systematic theology. It is still available from uh, Banner Truth. And it's, it's very helpful. It was his uh, lecture notes from his teaching, and he, he published it. Uh, this was actually the second edition. Uh, but, yeah, that was highly praised. It was used in the seminaries, in the Southern Presbyterian seminaries uh, yeah. in the past. And so very influential work. Yeah, you know, I first got into Dabney a little bit because, like I said before, my own interest and my own study in antebellum history, especially uh, ecclesiastical history. And so, of course, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the defense of Virginia in the South, which is what he wrote after the war. And, it, you know, if you're a Christian, especially, but it, just if you're a historian, if you want to understand more of a Southern perspective, I think you really need to read that book. And uh, there's a lot of um, historians uh, at Christian institutions who don't even know that the book exists, which to me is, is a little bit, even if you don't agree with it, you have to contend with the arguments that he's making, I think, to be educated on the topic. So um, that, that's how I kind of got familiar with him. But then, you know, I, as I was reading other sources and, you know, postbellum history, especially, I saw that Dabney would say things uh, in different essays that were just prophetic. And you include one of these essays. I'm going to go out a little bit out of order, I guess, here. But uh, your second uh, chapter on secularized education, Dabney says something that just is prophetic. He says, this is in 1879. Just think about this, 1879. He says, the state will fall into the hands of teachers who will not even teach secular learning honestly. Money will be wasted and the schools will become corrupting examples to their own pupils of slighted work and abused trusts. Christians must prepare themselves then for the following results. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Infidelity and practical ungodliness will become increasingly prevalent among Protestant youth, and our churches will have a more arduous contest for growth, if not for existence. That sounds like what we're living today, which is incredible to me that he could have seen this in 1879, and, and, you know, he has insights like this on other things. I mean, I think his, his essay on feminism, which you include, is, is the same exact way. But what gave Dabney this prophetic uh, kind of eye to see what was happening downstream from his time? Yeah, that's a good question. You read that quote, that is, that is fascinating. You know, here he's writing almost 100 years before the Supreme Court uh, rulings, driving prayer and Bible reading out of the public schools. And he's, he's saying this is exactly what's going to happen. How is he able to do it? I think part of it is he was extremely well-educated, had, uh, you know, as you mentioned, just a vast array of knowledge. But he was also uh, very intelligent. He was very logical. 
And so he's able to see what's going on at the time. You know, this newly uh, introduced statewide public school system in Virginia, which was new in uh, Virginia and in the South after the, the war. And he's just following the logic, you know, as to what's going to happen. I mean, he, he makes the argument that it will not be a Christian system because it will have to cater to the lowest common denominator, which he says is atheism, secularism. And he's, uh, yeah, he's able to understand exactly what's, what's going to take place. So I, I can't fully explain how he's so prophetic, but uh, that's just my, my uh, thoughts on his, is his, uh, his intelligence. It seemed to me, reading a bunch of these essays, that Dabney, like you said, he's a logical thinker, but he obviously, and I don't know if you're presuppositional or not in your apologetic methodology, but he, I almost caught hints of what reminded me of Van Til a little bit, even though he preceded Van Til. And, but he would have this ability to kind of look at a, a um, philosophy or worldview and get to the bottom of it. Okay, let, let's get to the skeleton. Let's get to the structure of what we're looking at. And he would just pick apart the assumption, the root assumptions of things and be able to um, extrapolate forward what would happen if these root assumptions were left unchecked. And he, he said things, I'm sure, in his day that must have made people think that he was slightly nutty, at least in certain circles. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kidding me. Bibles are going to be taken out of schools. You know, women are going to be abused. I mean, he's looking at feminism. It's like women are going to be abused. They're going to be, uh, you know, subject to the brutality of men uh, because they've given up their place as um, their uniqueness as a woman. And, and so people would have probably said, you're crazy. And look at him now. And he, he looks like he knew exactly what was going on. And, you know, maybe we should go back and, and check out what he had to say, because maybe he has something to say to us today. Um, that was my sense, at least while reading it. Uh, the first essay, though, that you uh, include in this is on parental responsibilities. What can you tell me about Dabney's view on uh, parenting? Well, this is Dabney's least controversial essay that I included in the book. And I wanted to start off with this one just because I think it's an inspiring essay for Christians, for parents, aspiring parents. And Dabney, this was a sermon that he gave to the Presbyterian Virginia. And he really just walks through the significance of parents and the task of parenting. And I think some people kind of downplay the influence parents can have on their children. And Dabney really uh, gets into the details, you know, as far as the, the morality of the parents, even just in setting an example for their children. Uh, that that will leave an impact on them for the rest of their lives. And he even gets into how uh, Christians, nominal Christians, can leave a negative uh, mark on their children in the future because they've seen hypocrisy and the like. And so he concludes the essay by saying that parenting is the most important task in the world. Uh, we're raising not just future generation, but uh, future Christians who will pass on the faith. And so it's a, it's a great essay. Yeah, I know at one point, I'm looking for the quote and I can't find it, but he compares uh, the love of God to the love of a parent. And uh, this beautiful passage where he talks about the sin that parents impart uh, to their children and then 
how their duty is to one of their duties if they're a loving parent and a Christian parent is to uh, help them know the Savior because <laughs> in a sense they passed on this sin and now they're going to help them get get rid of it by going to Christ the same way they did and I, I you know I'm not doing it justice but he said it in a very more flowery and beautiful way I thought. Um, what do you think uh, Dabney was facing in his own day that compelled him to write such an essay? And then in our day, what do you think Dabney's voice could teach us about parenting? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what uh, led him to write that essay other than just a deep conviction from the scriptures. And he, he gets into the Bible a lot. Conviction that you know, the role God has given parents and that that is to produce a, a godly seed or offspring, uh, as he quotes from Malachi. What does it mean for us today? Uh, well, th things haven't changed. You know, we're still uh, having children. That's how, you know, humanity goes on. And so I think this is a task that uh, Christians need to take seriously and I mean, one thing it can do is inspire us to have children. I think that's obviously something we're facing today is a, a declining birth rate, even in the church. I think it's yeah. kind of become the norm where parents uh, think, oh, how many kids do you want? And, you know, they're now in the two to three range in the church where that, you know, that's, uh, it would have been a lot more back in Dabney's day. You know, he had six, six sons, three of whom died in infancy. But uh, people were trying to have more kids back back then because they knew the influence uh, that they would have on the future. Yeah. You know, I made this connection. And I don't know if you did, but the parental responsibilities uh, section, which you include first, was in 1879 that he um, published that. And then in Chapter 2, Secularized Education, that was the same year. And so I just thought, well, these two <laughs> fit together beautifully. I think what he might be trying to tell us is that um, – and we'll get to the secular education in a minute, but is that parents need to first take their responsibility seriously for educating their children and which is included in nurturing them and raising them and providing and all of that. And, um, and this is not really the government's responsibility to do this. This is something that God has given to parents. And so, um, so in the same way that he's against this secularized education, he is for, uh, parents and the role that they have in their child's lives. I made that connection at least. Um, but, uh, but, you know, let's get into the, the second one here. So controversy time, right? Uh, secularized education. Dabney is against it, right? I mean, describe Absolutely. for me what he believes about education. Yeah, this is a fascinating essay. This is actually how I first got into uh, Robert Dabney was through his uh, writings on education. I'd seen some quotes. I was reading some, some books on Christian education. I was like, whoa, this guy is impressive. And the, the point of the essay, it's an attack on the public schooling movement taking place, as I mentioned, in the South after the, the war between the states. And you had some public schools in the South, but this idea of a statewide movement was pretty new. It was first introduced in Massachusetts in the 1830s, and then it was making its way into the South after the war. And so Dabney believed that education was a task that belongs to parents, first and foremost. Uh, so they didn't necessarily call it homeschooling back in the day, but 
just the concept that parents are supposed to teach their children, uh, you know, how to live, some basic tasks in life, uh, maybe so, even reading and writing, things like that. So, so I'm going to stop you real quick. So, yeah. so I just heard Zach Garris essentially say, without being presentist and taking the word homeschool and repackaging, you know, putting it back in the 1800s, but you, the concept though, you're saying this isn't a new crazy idea. This right. has actually been around and this is, uh, was common in the United States before the Department of Education uh, in, in the 1800s. So, so this wasn't, this isn't a new thing, I guess is my point. Is that right? Yes, ab absolutely. Homeschooling was the American tradition, uh, especially in the South. The Puritans, you know, had the public schools in, in the Northeast. They were local public schools, not statewide. But yeah, the Southern tradition was uh, homeschooling. They would use private schools to aid the task. And, and so Dabney's fine with private Christian schools. He thinks that's great. He taught at one, uh, was educated uh, at these, you know, kind of schoolhouses, um, but they were private and they were Christian. And so they were uh, very different from uh, the public schools that um, we deal with today. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So his concern then is that education um, is going to be secularized, as you said before, because if, if you get everyone in a room, and he, I think he even mentions Muslims eventually, he says they're a minority now, but you know, eventually, uh, you know, you're going to have other sects uh, and religions pop up. And if we want to have everyone in the same room learning, and you're going to, this neutral ground is going to be secularism, which is in really, in fact, a new religion, which I think is the point that he makes is that this is, this is a replacement of Christianity. And, and based on that, he predicts the sexual anarchy and, and everything else that we're seeing today. Um, and, and I guess we've lived, you know, with since the sixties with the, uh, Bibles being taken out, prayer being taken out, so forth. So, um, yeah. And anything else uh, that jumps out to you? I don't know if you had any favorite quotes or anything like that. I mean, the whole essay could probably be, you could just like highlight the whole thing. Right. But yeah, that's, that's kind of what you end up doing with that one. Yeah. Uh, he, he says that a uh, non-Christian education is an anti-Christian education. And I think that's an important line. He says it a couple times in there. And so Dabney had no, place for you know unbelievers in an unbelieving system educating christian children um and so yeah this is extremely applicable to to our own day he gives a lot of the arguments against uh, that we can use today against uh, our current public school system and, and one thing you know he gets into some things you don't always think about i mean he really emphasizes how other children will actually be one of the largest influences, negative influences on the children we place in public schools or that they can go for any school. The, the pooling of ignorance idea. Yes. Kind of, yeah. Yes. And so it's not just about the unbelieving instruction. It's also just the whole influence. And I think we need to take that into account when we're evaluating, you know, educational options. Yeah, it's interesting. Dabney, you didn't include these essays, but Dabney uh, also wrote on geology in the Bible and a caution against anti-Christian science. And it, he seems to have this idea that education in general and knowledge, I guess, in general, starts with, as Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord. There has to be an understanding there uh, before you can really get off the ground intellectually, which I think maybe what reminded me a little of Van Til when I was reading it. But um, absolutely fascinating. I'm going to read one of the quotes uh, 
that this is the first time he uses uh, the word anti-Christian in the essay you've included, but he says the concept of neutral or secular education is not only impossible, so he makes a philosophical argument, this is impossible, you can't have it, but it is in fact anti-Christian and goes on to predict more of what would happen. So um, yeah, I, I think everyone would do well to, to get this book and uh, to read kind of in a more... Um, just an easier to read way with your headlines and everything, uh, the headers there, what Dabney is, is saying. And, um, uh, and I appreciated that. Uh, the next uh, chapter that you've included, uh, as I said before, oh, and I just lost it. Uh, I believe that was on, let's see here, uh, women's rights and the, yeah, the, and he's writing this in 1871, right? So this is after Seneca Falls. This is actually after the war between the states. Um, but he makes some predictions here as well. What can you tell me about his predictions on what would happen uh, if feminism was left unchecked and, and some of his critiques of the movement? Yeah, so Dabney's dealing with first wave feminism in the uh, 1800s. And he sees it as an attack on the family, an attack on Christianity, uh, especially the idea of male headship. And so he sees... Feminism is driving a wedge between husband and wife. And instead of seeing them as one flesh, uh, you know, one household, it's dividing them. And so husband and wife will, uh, you know, actually be um, in strife with one another. And so his prediction is that feminism is going to undermine the family, um, undermine, you know, Christianity, weaken the church. Uh, it's going to make the situation for women actually worse. You know, they thought it was it's providing freedom, but it was actually, uh, in Dabney's view, going to make things much worse for them. Yeah, there's a famous quote uh, from this essay, or you know, is it this essay, or is it the one about American conservatism? I think it's from uh, this one. <laughs> I, where, I you, marked this one. I love. Oh, did you? Yeah. Do you want to give it, or you want me sure. to? Read it? Yeah. So he he says. Uh, and he's describing conservatism or specifically Northern conservatism, which he says is the only uh, opponent of women's rights at the time. And he says, uh, Northern conservatism, this is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at last in the innovation. What was the res resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. And I, I just think, I mean, you could cite that for a number of issues, but, uh, you know, what are we actually conserving today? I mean, when you look at, I mean, politically or, uh, yeah. you know, we're oftentimes so-called conservatives of the Republican Party, they just adopt the latest uh, progressive policy and then make it their own. Yeah, there's no principle. He says American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves towards perdition. And you know, <laughs> this is said all the time in conservative circles. You know, you hear even on like talk radio to say, well, do you want to jump off the cliff, you know, at you know, full speed or half speed? You know, we're, we're going to get to the same destination either way. Republicans are just going to do it more organized and in a smarter fashion. And it rings true with a lot of the more like Tea Party conservatives because they're like, why aren't we balancing our budget? Why are we spending like drunken sailors? Uh, how come 
you know, we've been pro-life for how long and we can't really get much done, which hopefully that's changing. But yeah, there's this sense that we just sort of adopt uh, the things that we fought before. We just, you know, they become part of the party platform, you know, like public education is a good example. This was a controversy. And now like no one, even the most ardent conservative would think about eliminating the Department of Education. Uh, well, maybe the most ardent, but you know, there's not many and they would probably be laughed out of the room. You, know, you can't do that. That's you know, fundamental right. Um, so you, we're arguing about healthcare now and I'm preaching, I know, but you know, how long before that is part of a, a plank in the Republican Party platform that well, free healthcare is also a right that the government must provide and we're going to do it in a smarter way. And that's what Dabney seems to be saying that uh, yeah. there's no principle. We're, we're unrooted. We just, um, kind of, we're the shadow that follows, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't call it liberalism, uh, but radicalism, which is probably a better word to predict. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, one of the, you know, I would say the, the chief problem of conservatism, conservatism today is that it doesn't have a consistent ideology. And so most conservatives can't, you know, actually defend their positions. They're just trying to give reasons why we shouldn't adopt, you know, the latest progressive policy. And so they end up just following this, as, as Dabney says, you know, you have a lot of conservatives now wanting some sort of paid family leave policy. You know, they don't actually get rid of Obamacare. They just, uh, uh, repeat you know they were supposed to get rid of all of it instead they just got rid of they modified some of it um but but the point being they don't argue for like a consistent principle such as free market mm -hmm. healthcare or free market education uh, it's just giving into the progressive uh way and it's it's sad and but dabney can help us have a more consistent worldview i know Paul Gottfried, I once heard him say that, you know, America doesn't have a lot of conservative thinkers in its history, but he listed Dabney as one of America's few conservative thinkers. That's interesting that he did that. Because, uh, you know, I was trying to think, did Russell Kirk include, I mean, he included Calhoun in his conservative mind, but I think Dabney, because he was a theologian and he's primarily known as that, he gets overlooked a little bit, but yeah, in post, uh, you know, in Reconstruction era South, he's probably one of the foremost political thinkers as well. Um, and I don't know yeah, that he's that, gotten, yeah. That's, that's what's interesting is, so what if he was a theologian? I mean, that actually, I mean, in my opinion, should uh, help guide him in some of these things. But he, he wasn't just a theologian. He was also a political thinker. Um, he addressed, you know, all sorts of these issues. So, yeah, it's it's not it's not fair to leave Dabney out of the discussion as as many have. Yeah, um, one of the things that I felt necessary to include in well, there's two things in this conversation though about women's rights, which is your third chapter uh, that you include of, of Dabney, his essay there on women's rights. Uh, number one, I think when we talk about first wave feminism, the picture that people get is. Uh, wanting the right to vote and that's pretty much it just women's suffrage uh you, know, you go back to um you know, like mary poppins right the suffragettes marching that's probably the only image that a lot of people at least in pop culture have but in actuality and, and this comes out as you read dabney's essay there's a lot more being 
smuggled in behind that. There, there's a lot more to it. Um, and I just know in my own study of uh, first wave feminism, you know, 1848 Seneca Falls, they're doing seances in the basement, read their declaration of rights. I mean, marriage is slavery. Uh, it, it is radical stuff. And, and that's when, when I hear conservatives saying, well, the third wave feminists, you know, they really have the problem. I'm like, well, yeah, they do. But first wave feminists uh, kind of got that ball rolling. And it become because I think, this is my own opinion here, but they became untethered from any kind of uh, biblical authority. And of course, we were a Christian civilized, we were part of Christian civilization before. Um, uh, and, and this was kind of, I think, one of the first steps to um, have this autonomy that, that we can have these concepts of freedom and liberty apart from the constraints that were put on them necessarily by uh, by nature and uh, by the special revelation that guided us. So, um, so they wanted women in the clergy. They wanted women in, in all professions. And, and this was radical, especially at that time. And, and so when Dabney's talking about it, you, you know, he's, he's looking at, uh, I think this is right before, but, you know, the sentiment was still there. Things like Elizabeth Cady Statton, you know, publishing the Woman's Rights Bible, cutting out all the verses that had to do with women submitting to men or the creation role that God has ordained. And so, um, so this isn't just Dabney griping about women are going to vote now. That, that's not, if, if you think that's what he's doing, you need to read the essay because that wasn't the argument going on at that time. So um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but do you agree, disagree? I mean, that's the way I look at it. No, I, I completely agree. And, and this is something that needs to be said more often is that first wave feminism was you know, the origin of later feminism. I mean, it, uh, modern feminism today has its roots in this movement. And it wasn't just for uh, the right for women to vote, but it was also uh, for really undermining marriage. As, as you said, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a radical. She, you know, did not like a lot of things written in the Bible about uh, gender roles. And so she's downplayed today. A lot of times they, People like to talk about Susan B. Anthony because she was less controversial, but Stanton had, she has quotes about uh, wanting no-fault divorce, like easier divorce laws, and, and a lot of these things that the feminists got later down the road. Uh, there were also women pastors, as you mentioned, wrapped up in the movement. And of course, they don't get the attention that Susan B. Anthony does, but even she herself was a Quaker uh, you know, this was not an Orthodox Christian. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, people should study the, the feminist movement more. Yeah, yeah. And I know we're not here to just discuss that, but I, it has to be kind of brought up in this discussion. Um, you know, you do realize because of what you and I just said, we will never be running for political office, but <laughs> that's okay. I wasn't planning on it anyway. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you're a politician and you're listening and you agree with what we're saying, just you might want to keep your mouth shut. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, so Dabney, you know, whether you agree with all his critiques or not, there's a general kind of attempt to bring scripture to bear on this topic. And um, the other thing I wanted to bring up with this chapter uh, to transition is today, this is kind of an issue. I know you were mentioning to me before we started recording, uh, even in Presbyterian circles, this is an issue. But I know in the SBC right now with Beth Moore, uh, this is an issue preaching. Um, you know, we have uh, some of our SBC seminaries, women uh, on the board. So they're making decisions about curriculum for men. And there's this idea uh, that a, a woman can really do anything 
as long as they're not ordained as a pastor. They could, it could be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. This idea has been floated now. And um, I got in, you know, I, I don't like getting in Twitter wars. I got into one though, uh, starting last night a little bit and uh, about feminism and just to see what people are saying about feminism. I, I, it just, my head spinning because it's just so detached from biblical truth. So um, I think we know what Dabney would have said if he were alive today about those things. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, as you've interacted with Dabney, as you've read uh, some of his critiques, what would you have to say to um, modern PCA and SBC folks that are in conservative denominations wanting to transition them into this more egalitarian mold? Well, I think first and foremost, they're catering to the culture rather than basing their views and practices on, on scripture. Uh, scripture speaks very strongly about uh, gender roles and, you know, men as having a position of leadership in the home and in the church. And I feel the, what we're seeing today is Christians wanting to you know, appease the culture in a lot of ways. They want uh, women, we want to put women in positions of some sort of authority, uh, get them on staff roles and uh, leading Bible studies or, or whatever we can do to make it look like we're not sexist to the culture. Uh, and I think that that's just not how we should be doing things as Christians. We should be going to the scriptures first, um, looking at what it says about uh, men and women and gender roles and uh, and going going from there rather than trying to please people who really don't care what we do anyway. I mean, they're going to call us, you know, sexist, yeah. homophobic bigots anyway. So I, I just don't understand why we're trying to cater to these people. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I think one of the strengths of Dabney is he looks at the role of women and he elevates it and says, this is what God created. How beautiful is this? And you want to go destroy it. And you know, you're in an attempt to be like men, you're giving up one of the greatest gifts God's given you. And I think that's powerful. Um, and, and I don't hear a lot of that. And, and maybe even from myself, you know, I tend to get into discussions about, okay, well, what does uh, Genesis chapter two say about women's role as a helpmate? Or, you know, what does uh, Paul have to say in, um, you know, the three main passages that he talks about women's roles in the church and in the home? And, um, you know, maybe, maybe Dabney has something to teach us on this. Yeah, go for that, but also elevate who a woman is in the eyes of God and how that's unique and to be celebrated. And um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we do enough of that, but. Yeah, just if I can comment there, I mean, Dabney, you know, he sure gets this uh, image of being the sexist guy who doesn't like women or anything, but look, we need to understand people in, at their time. I mean, this was a man who had a wife, I mean, he cared very much for his wife if you read his letters and these things. And if you read this women's rights essay, he, uh, you know, has a lofty view of women. He, he views uh, women as um, needing to be protected and cared for, and they have uh, the great task of motherhood. And so, he, as you said, he just has this very high opinion of women, but he understands that they're different from men and they have different roles. And when you spurn those roles, you are going to cause some problems. And so, you know, one of the subheadings uh, in this chapter is women spurning their protectors. Mm. So he gets into that more in detail, but it, 
It's the idea that feminism is actually throwing off male protection. And that's part of why it's putting women in a pers- uh, worse place is leaving them vulnerable. Well, he, he, he uses words like they're going to be corrupted and uh, they have, he, you know, he doesn't want to disparage them. He uses the word disparage. I'm not disparaging them, but I am, I am looking at the role that God gave them and wanting to champion that. But there's a, in, the, in the section that you, I think, uh, mentioned, there's a story, right, about a man. Yeah, you want to tell that story real quick? Uh, let's see if I can recall it all. There's a, a man on the, was it a rail, uh, railway? Yeah, I think, I think he's sitting on a railroad. Uh, at a, yeah, exactly right. He's sitting there going somewhere. And uh, the right. woman asks him for his seat. You know, won't you do the honorable thing, give up your seat for a woman? And the man says, you know, let me ask you, are you uh, part of the women's rights movement? Or are you a women, woman's rights woman? And she says, yes, I am. And I don't remember his exact response, so, but it was something. He says, I, um, so he says, I will surrender it cheerfully, meaning his seat, madame, as I always do, but will beg leave first to ask a civil question. Are you an advocate of the modern theory of women's rights? And uh, bridling up with intense energy, she replied, yes, sir, emphatically, I uh, let you know that it is my glory to be devoted to that noble cause. And he says, very well, madame, said he, then the case is altered. You may stand up like the rest of us men until you can get a seat for yourself. So <laughs> I thought it was, <laughs> Adabdi is like, this is, you know, this is what you want. You're going to be treated like men. So, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> the, point. the, the uh, Unless there was something else you wanted to add to the discussion of women's rights, I, I wanted to jump to the last chapter. Um, I want to maybe get into the idea of hierarchy, but I don't know if you want to wait on that. Yeah, let's I let's uh, do that at the very end okay. um, because I, I want we need to talk about that, and we need to also talk about what to do with Dabney because he's so vilified. So you know, you guys are talking about Dabney and you're saying positive things and we need to maybe have a little discussion on that. But uh, so let's talk about hierarchy after we um, briefly discuss his last chapter, uh, the last chapter you include, which is on <coughs> ethics. Uh, frankly, I, I got through this pretty quick because um, I didn't have a lot of time, but it is a deep chapter. And my takeaway was Dabney doesn't like uh, the, the idea that sovereignty rests in people he thinks that it rests in god and god is the one who ordains government and he outlines what kind of circumstances would arise that would require or allow us to as uh, rebel against government if you want to use that term or um you know cast it you know illegitimate government cast it off and then in what circumstances to submit and so forth so it was fascinating and applicable um could you kind of walk me through what his argument is here yeah, well, it's it's hard because he gets into a lot of aspects of government. Uh, this is one of his more philosophical uh, works in this book. Um, probably the hardest one to read. That's why I put it last. Um, I should mention there that Dabney was a philosopher, and so he actually uh, gets into a lot of difficult issues at times. So in the civic ethics essay, he's really laying the grounds for government. He says, as, as you mentioned, that government is founded by God. It's instituted by God. And so government has authority over us as citizens. He has to deal with some differing views. And so he criticizes uh, the social contract theory, the idea that we 
you know, assented, made some social contract uh, for this government. And so he, he criticizes that. Uh, he criticizes the uh, divine right of kings. And so in a lot of ways, he's, he's uh, uh, defending the American form of government, uh, republicanism. He even uh, defends the idea of separation of church and state. Although I should clarify, he does not mean the, the modern version of separation of church and state. He simply means that, you know, we don't have state churches, which some of, some of the American states had state churches even into the 1830s. But, you know, this idea of Virginia, where he was from, you know, following Jefferson, uh, had separation between the church and, and the state. But he, he's not arguing that government should be separated from religious arguments or uh, that kind of right. thing. Right. He so, just believed in spheral authority, the different spheres that God had absolutely. ordained. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So he ends up dealing with a variety of uh, issues in here, such as when we can uh, rebel against tyrants. And so he takes up some historical issues such as the uh, American Revolution. And he ties it in with the war between the states. And of course, his position is that uh, the South in the war between the states was just taking up the same principles as the colonies did against Britain and American uh, Revolution. And so he's saying, look, this is, we're just seceding, uh, which he thought was legal. And, and that was his position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, he, he does not like um, he doesn't seem to like John Locke very much, right? Uh, he doesn't, um, and there's a couple other philosophers that he mentions in their Hobbes. He does not like Hobbes, right? Rousseau. <laughs> so he's <laughs> criticizing a lot of these guys. And uh, it, it is, it was intriguing. And I actually want to go through it uh, at a slower pace just so I can try to absorb uh, his argument a little better. But um, it, it's a Christian who's a philosopher who's also politically minded. Uh, get you know really grappling with these things, and you just don't see that a lot. It's deep thinking, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and uh, that's an essay I've had to read it several times, and I, I still don't remember everything that's in it. So uh, that's <laughs> that's one that people should, if they're interested in government and uh, you know philosophy of government, that's an essay to read and reread. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't make me feel so bad now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so that's the book. And it, I mean, it's, it's short. You could probably read it in a couple hours and get through it. Um, I, I wanted to uh, talk about what we just mentioned before. So hierarchy and then, um, you know, why, why look at Dabney? So, so what was Dabney's idea of hierarchy? Why is hierarchy important? Well, Dabney believed that hierarchy is essential to society to civilization and so this really sets him at odds with uh, the modern egalitarian spirit which i think has its origins or at least part of them in the french revolution the jacobins as he refers to where they wanted to uh, you know basically abolish all distinctions between gender uh, other roles in life and so it's this idea of equality or this you know sameness they wanted um, you know, they, they oppose hierarchy. And so Dabney's at the opposite end of the spectrum. He's embracing hierarchy as a good, as something given to us by God. And so this ends up playing out in a variety of roles. 
Obviously, God is at the top. He has hierarchy over all of us. We submit to him. Uh, but he, <clears throat> he's also instituted government as having authority over us. And uh, then this also plays into the roles of, um, you know, husband being uh, the head of the household. And uh, wives are supposed to submit to husbands. And children are supposed to submit to parents. And it also ties in with his view on uh, slaves uh, obeying their masters. Of course, he would also say masters, as the scriptures say, should treat their slaves well. So it really, it, it plays into all of life. And that, that's why I think this is an important topic. And uh, it comes up in a lot of his writings, and it comes up in pretty much every single one of these essays in this book. Yeah, and it's funny, the word equality or, you know, equal, uh, all the words in that family, they appear about 73 times. I don't know if you did a search on this, but I did. And uh, <laughs> in the book, he uses it a lot. And yeah. he makes a distinction here. He talks about uh, Jacobin equality. And he yeah. adds that adjective, uh, you know, there's Jacobin equality. And he makes a distinction between that and uh, equality before God. And this is, you know, all these battles, it seems like... Um, today in in politics and in the church are fundamentally battles over the dictionary the worldviews in collision and these the secular humanists take words that meant one thing and then uh give them a new meaning and equality is one of these words that if you mention it today people i think automatically go to an egalitarian mindset oh yeah like everyone should have the same political mobility so, uh, you know, everyone should have an equal say, no matter what their level of education, you know, anything, you know, gender, whatever the case may be, everyone should have equal access to the same things, uh, equal opportunity, equal outcome, that's equality. And um, that wasn't, it seems like when Dabney was writing, this term was in transition. And we're on the other side of that now, looking back, saying, okay, the term has actually changed definitions. Uh, now, which is just fascinating to me because he's still fighting for this word. <laughs> it's like, no, this is Jacob inequality. We have actual equality before God, which is an equality of worth and the same needs, uh, spiritual needs like repentance. And so um, hierarchy is now the enemy of today's definition because the Jacobins won of equality. So if you support hierarchy, now you are against equality, which is like one of the core virtues of our uh, socialistic <laughs> culture. And so it, it, it's difficult to make these arguments. And, and I think this transitions into why we, why even defend Dabney? Why do, do something like a book on this? Um, it, this is a guy who believed in, in that there were levels of authority that God had ordained. Not a popular idea now. So, I mean, are you, are you concerned <laughs> that People are going to read this and get upset at you or I mean, how do you argue this too? Well, I mean, people will get upset at me, I'm sure. But I think that hierarchy is essential to conservatism. I think it's actually fundamental to conservatism, uh, but it's also fundamental to Christianity. And so I have no problem defending it, even though I know it's uh, controversial. And I mean, hierarchy comes from God. I mean, that's Dabney's whole point is this is, this is the world God has created and he's given us different roles in life. And uh, that's something we need to embrace. It's not something to be rejected. And so when you look at, you know, he's contrasting the American concept of equality, which as you said, is 
you know, equality and worth, or he says equality before the law. Mm. That's the idea is, is humans should be treated equally before the law, or he calls it the equality of the golden rule. And he, he actually gets into the uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, the preamble. He says, look, people are misinterpreting this. And I hear this all the time. Um, and you see this with some of the uh, neoconservatives, actually. They like to uh, interpret the Declaration of Independence um, in, in this way, uh, that all men are created equal. And they say, well, look, that's inconsistent with, you know, even practices at the time. Well, maybe you're misreading the Declaration. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's not what Jefferson uh, and those who signed it meant, is that everybody's the same. Uh, of course, they wouldn't believe that. that that's absurd. Um, you know, they meant, as Dabney's defending, this equality before the law. And what people are doing is they're embracing, you know, the French Revolution view of equality, egalitarianism. And they're interpreting the Declaration of Independence in this light. And uh, yeah, but it really, that's an atheistic view. It's, it's not the Christian view. And so that's, that's why, I mean, if people take just one thing away from this book, I think it's this point. And I get into this in the introductory essay. So it's not just Dabney's uh, essays. I also try to uh, explain this a little bit. Uh, but it's, it's really important stuff. And it plays out in a lot of these issues, especially with feminism today. I think that's a huge application of it. Yeah, he, he actually, this is uh, in the book on the last, I think it's the last essay, but he says that, um, he talks about equality and he says, in British common law, uh, the idea, this was, the, the phrase used was equal before the law, which you just mentioned. Uh, and he says, all are equal in the sense that they have a rationale. Uh, they're responsible and they have an immortal destiny and they're inalienable entitled to pursue that. And, and, and that's really where it ends. There's, that's what equality meant to them. And, and of course, in our conception, we borrowed from the concepts of the British common law. So that's what it meant in the declaration as well. And, uh, and I think you're absolutely right to bring that up. This mistake is made so often by Christian thinkers when they just smuggle in egalitarianism into the declaration. It drives me nuts as a historian as well. That's not <laughs> what it meant. You know, and, and, you know, I, part of me wants to get into, um, you know, Daniel Webster. I think it was Webster. Uh, but then of course, Abraham Lincoln and then forward, there is this, they constantly abuse the declaration that way, but we won't go there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, hierarchy, you know, you, you said it's fundamental and another word that came to my mind, would you say that hierarchy is inescapable? Would you go that far or you? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're reading the same Bible as I am, I mean, it, it says a lot of things about, uh, hierarchy. I mean, for one, just as a Christian, you, you have to, uh, submit to God. He has authority over us and, and there's other you know, structures of authority over us, government, uh, parents, things like this. But yeah, it's also inescapable in the sense of somebody is going to rule. I mean, right. I mean, look at even the, the French Revolution. I mean, they can embrace, tell you they embrace egalitarianism all they want. At the, in the, at the end of the day, there's going to be rulers and it ends up being tyrants. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's inescapable. That's, this is just the world we live in and we need to embrace the right form of hierarchy, which is Christian hierarchy. 
Yeah. This is be controversial as everything we've been talking about is, but in my mind, hierarchy is, (laughs) it is Liberty's defense mechanism from, uh, the what you just described a tyranny a tyranny of some kind you know hierarchy is liberty's defense against tyranny and if you don't have a, a structure that is capable of supporting even the weakest in a society the government's going to come in and say well you need us and then the only relationship is between an individual and this big heavy-handed government which is what we want to avoid and i don't see how we avoid it if we don't have families and children husbands and wives um, and of course, the other one that Paul talks about, he talks about those two relationships, but in Ephesians uh, chapter six, and then in Colossians four, uh, he adds to those two slave and master uh, as well. And, I, you know, it was a pagan slave system in, in um, the culture he was talking to, but, you know, Christians want to shy away from that. And, and I don't look at that as, um, you know, we got to reinstitute uh, the kind of slavery that was in America at all, but, but just the idea that there are those who are in charge of a labor force and then there are those who are doing the labor. So if you want to take that to business today, um, there's a hierarchy there and you know, this gets into private property and other things. And it's, it's all a needle in the eye of the government because the government doesn't have authority there. So Dabney is just uh, forward thinking in my head when he looks at this and says, Hey, we, <laughs> we need some principles and hierarchy is one of the mainstays. Um, now, why why do this book? Why um, why get yourself into uh, a, a situation where people could look at you and say, you know, are you a bigot? You you supported Dabney in this. I mean, how should we think about someone like Dabney? Who, let's face it, he held slaves, right? And we don't like that today. So, tell me your thoughts. Well, first off, I don't think this uh, you know people being uncomfortable with Dabney and slavery. I don't think it's going to be limited to Dabney. We're seeing it with uh, just, you know, other positions as well. Whitfield. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Whit- yeah. I mean, just other men such as Whitfield, uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards had slaves and um, as did Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. So I mean, Dabney was not alone as a, a man who, held slaves in, in the United States. And so we have to ask the question, you know, is it okay to uh, promote these men? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think that there's nothing about Dabney that in my mind disqualifies him from, um, you know, the, the fact that we can read him, study him, benefit from his writings and even promote his writings and, and promote the man um, himself. And so, uh, I mean, he was an Orthodox theologian. He was a moral man. He was a, a good man. Uh, was he controversial even in his time? Yes, in some ways. Uh, but I just, I just don't see what would uh, lead us to not be able to uh, promote him even if you don't agree with everything he wrote or said that's that's fine that's i think to be expected with anyone um you know and i don't think just because of his association with slavery that we should ignore him Uh, i think that's to our our detriment so uh at best even if those who disagree with him they have something to learn from him right um 
you are taking the extra step and saying, well, not only do we have something to learn, but we have something positive to learn. So there's something to promote here in some of these essays. And I would agree with you. I think the essays that you included are, are worth uh, looking at and learning from and uh, promoting some of the concepts there because they're biblical. He's just applying them to culture. But, uh, you know, th there's an idea and, and we don't have time to flesh this out. You know, we, we're kind of towards the end of our discussion here. But um, th there is this idea that Slavery is like the chief sin uh, that, you know, racism, slavery, um, sexism. You, these are, you don't, you don't have like in the church uh, groups that are accountability groups for those who struggle with, let's say, racism, right? Like you don't get, there's no compassion there. As soon as someone says something that could be even taken possibly as racially insensitive, they are blacklisted forever. Uh, at least I, I've seen that over and over. And um, it, it, it it's interesting to me because uh, I believe, you know, racism is a sin, obviously. Um, slavery, though, uh, in and of itself is not. Now, you can have bad slave systems. Uh, the Roman slave system was a bad slave system. I don't think they had gladiators in the American South, right? But um, there, there's a way to, as Paul says, participate in evil systems uh, as a Christian and be a salt and light in that system. Uh, you know, I think about the abortions happening in this country. And um, our tax money that might be going to it or think about the welfare system or think about, uh, you know, sweatshops that create products that we buy in Walmart and stuff. There's, there's entryways into which we sometimes participate in these things, but we're not guilty of them. And um, we can do so in a Christian way that um, brings hopefully salt and light to that. And so and I would look at Dabney kind of that way is this he, he's he's not Dabney says in the defense of Virginia in the South that Virginia was foremost in wanting to stop the slave trade. He hated the slave trade. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons the Confederate Constitution outlaws it, but he, he you know, I think without reading the entire book here on camera, you know, <clears throat> Dabney said that there were many sins attached to it, and he was against those things and tried to be biblical within the world that he was in, which is, I think, what God expects of all of us, right, in the context that we're in to serve him. Um, so, so you look today at, at a guy like MLK, right? And I'm sure, you know, you've heard about the findings, I think it was last week that were released of MLK, uh, in a situation where there was a rape going on. He's giving advice on how to do it and he's laughing and all, all these horrible things. Um, he's grandstanded. If I, I think I created a word, uh, he's elevated, right? He's, he's a hero. And he's celebrated as this messianic figure, and yet his personal life is completely antithetical, out of sync with scripture. You know, his, uh, he, he was a heretic in many ways. Just read his doctoral dissertation. There's no indication he changed from that. But yet, because of his I Have a Dream speech, he is completely a hero. And I think his I Have a Dream speech, you know, is great. We should champion that. Um, but he gets a pass and Dabney doesn't. And, and that's the interesting thing to me is, is that someone so outside of the scope of orthodoxy and even just basic biblical fidelity is given this conference last year, MLK 50. And yet Dabney is, you, you, I mean, Christianity Today used to publish things about him in a positive light. You can't get anyone to touch him with a 10 foot pole now. Um, yeah. So, so that's my rant on that. But uh, you know, I don't want to do more talking than you. I probably already have. <laughs> do you have other thoughts on this, uh, on how to introduce Dabney to an audience that um, would just want to run away when they hear the word slavery? Uh, hand in my book. That's, that's the first. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> that's a good. 
No, I, and actually, I, I had to self-publish this because, I mean, I didn't even try reaching a publisher because I knew they wouldn't want to publish it. Not, not any main publishers. Uh, you know, Banner of Truth publishes some of Dabney's works. They did them back in the 80s. And some of them are still available in print. Sometimes you have to get used copies. But yeah, this is somebody people want to avoid now. He's politically incorrect. And something's clearly changed in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, it's not just Dabney, but I, I mean, we're seeing it with him in the church. And yeah, you contrast this with Martin Luther King Jr. Look, it was known before last week that Martin Luther King Jr. was an adulterer, that he ran around on his wife. That was, that was already known. And yet the Gospel Coalition had MLK 50 uh, last year. Hmm. So how, how do they defend that? I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people were critical of, of them doing that. I mean, as you mentioned, this is a man who was a heretic and he was immoral. And something I would like to add to that is, you know, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5. Now he's speaking of, you know, someone who's alive, but he says if someone calls himself a Christian, a brother, and they're engaged in unrepentant sin, you know, adultery being one of them. He says, don't even associate with this man. Don't, don't even eat with him. And so I have to ask why then, even if that person is dead, he's a famous person, and he called himself a Christian like Martin Luther King Jr. did, but was unrepentant in serious sin, why would you even associate with him? And certainly, why would you promote him? And contrast that with Dabney. I don't think we can say that about Dabney. As I said, he was orthodox in his theology. He was a morally upright man. And I know some people would say, well, he owned slaves. Well, as far as I know, he treated his slaves well. He tried to follow the biblical principles for slavery. And at the end of the day, we do have to take up the fact that Paul gave instructions to slave masters, you know, he said, slaves, obey your master. And he said, masters, treat your slaves well. Um, you know, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4. We have the book of uh, Philemon. You know, I heard, I heard, I think it was Jared Wilson just the other day said that George Whitfield, he was attacking George Whitfield. And he said that if Whitfield was in his church and he refused to repent of his, you know, ownership of slaves, Essentially, he would excommunicate him. He'd kick him out of the church. But on, on what basis can you do this? On what biblical basis? Right? If the man is following the, the biblical principles for slavery, you can't say he was in unrepentant sin. You know, even if the system itself had uh, problems, as, as Dabney himself pointed out. You know, he, he criticized the abuses of uh, slaves. He criticized, he hated the slave trade, as you said. Right. He thought that was a great evil. And so, yeah, I think we just have to ask, um, you know, on what biblical basis do you say this man was in unrepentant sin? Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I know, um, I think especially later, uh, I read a book by Eugene Genovese where he taught, he liked Dabney a lot, he liked Thornwell, and he, he kind of got disappointment. I pointed in some of them, uh, the Presbyterian theologians, because he felt that after the war, um, because of the way Reconstruction uh, happened, uh, they, um, and I don't remember the exact quote from Dabney, but there was a sort of a lending of support to a segregation of sorts. And 
And of course, I would stand against uh, that idea. Um, I, the reconstruction time period, I think, has to be understood uh, to understand why they did that. But there, there really isn't a, a moral justification uh, for supporting that kind of thing. I, I think segregation is disgusting. Um, but uh, that being said, um, I have to, to look at someone in the time period that they're in. And, um, and so this is where presentism, I think, is, is just a cancer that will eat away all of history. Uh, someone that, that lives in a time of Dabney with the limited, even though he was a brilliant man, um, he did not have the full knowledge that we do about uh, racial, if we want to call it equality, um, that, that we have today. We live in this multicultural culture where we're just interacting with people all the time. Uh, and, we, and we see that every uh, ethnicity is capable of doing pretty much every job and stuff. And Dabney didn't have the advantage of seeing things from that perspective. And it doesn't justify it totally, but what it does is it helps us, I think, um, it helps us sympathize a little bit with the time period he lived in and realize the constraints that were on him. These were the same ideas that were in the North um, and, and even in Europe. I mean, this wasn't anything, Dabney's views are not unique in any way on, on that issue of... Um, if you want to call it white uh, supremacy, which would be, I guess, the bad way to put it, the negative way, but uh, the the idea that um, Europeans were special in God's plan, and they had knowledge, they had the Industrial Revolution, they had the scientific explosion, all these things, and you know th that was the time he lived in, and that's what everyone pretty much thought, and and they wanted to go help, you know, in missions efforts and so forth, uh, other cultures and countries and people groups, but they did, there was an air sometimes of superiority there. And, um, and something like adultery is so fundamental to scripture and being wrong. That was something MLK wasn't in a time where he just didn't know adultery was wrong, right? That was right. clear as day and, um, and absolutely wrong. And, um, and, and I think, um, you know, there are biblical principles that would speak to segregation and so forth. Um, but if you look at Dabney's writings uh, on this uh, topic, he's, out, he's not outside of the mainstream. And for me, I can look at a man like this and say, okay, you know what, Dabney's biblical views, he's inconsistent in this area. But this isn't fundamental to who he is as a person. He's still an orthodox man. And, and I hope when someone looks at me in the future, they don't judge me as harshly as people judge Dabney. I hope they can see, okay, mm -hmm. John was inconsistent over here. But, you know, at the core of what he was aspiring to, uh, what he believed fundamentally, that was intact. And you just can't say that about MLK uh, or, or, you know, some of the other ones that are like James Cone, who's being promoted now. Um, they're heretics. <laughs> at the, they're, there's nothing redeemable uh, at the bottom floor, uh, at the foundation. So, um, so I, I think you've done a service in putting this book out there. We need to look at Dabney's ideas and we need to grapple with them. Uh, are there any final remarks you want to add before we um, end the interview? I mean, yeah, I would just say, as far as your last comments, um, you know, Dabney was a man of his his time. And, you know, this is going to be the case really with anybody you read from the 19th century. And so uh, just try to understand them. You know, you can disagree with them, but it doesn't mean you have to dismiss uh, the rest of their writings. And so... Yeah, Dabney is someone we should uh, embrace. We should read him and study him and, and learn from him. And uh, Amen. Yeah, if people want to learn more about my book, uh, DabneyOnFire.com has some more information. It's available on Amazon. Uh, I think people will like it. I, I really, that's why I, um, 
I put this book out. I, I want people to, to enjoy Dabney's writings and benefit from them. All right. Go out there to dabneyonfire.com or search for Dabney on Fire at Amazon. And uh, yeah, how can people be praying for you other than that, you know, people won't come and harass you <laughs> at your house? <laughs> uh, well, just uh, I got some things going on in life. I got to take the, the bar exam um, end of July. I'm getting married in August, so I have a lot going on. Um, but yeah, pray that people don't harass me uh, over this book too much. <laughs> I don't think your wife would appreciate that. All right. No. Well, God bless, Zach. Uh, have All a right. good day. God bless thanks you. for joining me. Bye now. All right. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.